This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 139 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Joining us this week is Espen Johansson, Operations and Security Manager at Visma, an information technology and services company headquartered in Oslo. He shares insights on the types of attacks he sees targeting organizations like Visma and the lessons learned from a nation-state attack Visma experienced in August 2018. He'll give us his take on threat intelligence, as well as advice for organizations just beginning their own threat intelligence journey. We sat down with Espen Johansson at Recorded Future's 2019 R Fund Predict Conference in Washington, D.C. Stay with us. We started off, uh, I guess, with this kind of profession when I was quite young. I've always been interested in, in breaking into stuff and hacking. But I, was, I worked for 13 years in the armed forces first, um, specialized in normal line management and also strategy and tactics and all that normal stuff. And uh, I was always kind of into this uh, hacking domain since I was a kid and trying to, to just learn along the way. And then I moved out of defense Moved into security uh, in the private enterprise around 2000. Has been there now for 19 years in various security positions, both inside and outside of Norway. Mm. So it's um, kind of a passion for me, this stuff. It's been like this for my whole life. You and I are, are right around the same age. So we probably came up, were you in, in that, that original uh, you know, 8-bit computer period, the, the Apple IIs and the TRS-80s, or did you come in later? I would say the ZX81, Sinclair yeah. ones, sure. early days. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing that they did anything at all back then, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, weird stuff. I was, I was more interested in other things back then when I was younger, so I was not really geeky until I get older. Yeah. Well, give us an overview of the kinds of things that you encounter day-to-day with your work at Visma. So my, my primary job is to, to lead the, the AppSec program that we do have in, in Visma. It's a global program. And the primary job is just to supply the developers that we have. It's about 5,000 of them with good tools, methods, uh, and help them uh, stand. If they're under attack, it's my job to, to defend together with them, to assist them in becoming good and, and self-reliant. So we have this strong urge or strong drive towards agile. So all the teams are supposed to be self-managed, and we have to help them in becoming self-managed and making good decisions. Kind of like raising a child. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Um, well, as an international organization, I mean, what are some of the specific challenges you face there with people coming at you from all over the world? So we would see all kinds of nation states, all kinds of um, cyber criminals doing all kinds of cyber nasty all the time. That's a normal day at the office. What do you think motivates them, the nation state actors? What are the types of things that they're targeting you for? It's difficult to say because you can't really get them to tell you what they're after. So you have to analyze and figure out what they most likely are after. So it's kind of tricky most of the time to actually know exactly what they're after. But you can deduce some of it from the evidence that you're presented with when they, they, they do actually attack you. So then you can analyze and try to figure out what was their original plan and compare that to other campaigns that have done the same actor in the past and, or in the future also. You all experienced an attack back in August of 2018. Yeah. Um, can you walk us through what was that like? What happened? And what sort of uh, lessons did you learn from that? 
Now, I'm going to give a quite long presentation on that later today, but I can give you a really kind of short version of that. The attack started uh, about seven days before they hit us. They spawned a command and control domain. And that command and control domain was then used later on. Seven days after the spawning, uh, they had, um, before this, they had harvested some credentials through phishing, loads of phishing globally, and some places not quite far from us, so on private domains of, of employees and stuff. And then it, what appears to be a kind of credential stuffing attack, gained access to a, um, an old Citrix server, mm. escalated their privileges, moved laterally, and was able to steal Active Directory Hive uh, from that and exfiltrated that. And we were able to discover it at the moment of exfil. So we were able to do the, the normal uh, blue, blue team stuff, basically changing the passwords and heightening all the sensors. So I'm preparing then for the second wave because this was obviously not the actual purpose of the attack. What was the next phase? Preparing for that. Uh, and we were able to stop that. And we saw that they tried to log on with their stolen credentials about seven days later. In that sense, we were based on the fact that we discovered it quite early and we had good help from, from good bounty hunters out there. We could close the, the door from them quite early. So we are also telling this story widely. We chose to go public with it. But the, you don't attack us without punishment. We, we don't take this as a kind gesture when people attack <laughs> us. So we are hell-bent on figuring out who did this and why. So we always find out who it is. And then we choose to share the stories. That is our default. When you were expecting that they were going to come back, when you say they, they attempted to log on, at that point, I suppose they didn't know that you knew. So what sort of preparations had you been doing? What, what sort of traps had you laid for them for when this inevitability came to pass? I don't think I can comment too much on that. because yeah. That's kind of internal stuff. But this is kind of what we need to do when you're on the blue team because you know that when you're in the firing line, when you're getting hit by someone... You know that you're on your own. There is no police forces that comes riding in and puts up a barricade around you. So you have to defend yourself. So that's why you have to have multiple layers of defenses and you have to be prepared for all kinds of cases. And uh, some of that is basically raising the awareness of, of, the, uh, of the end users, making them aware of what do they need to do in case of emergency. And to be able to basically change passwords of all users in an enterprise is something that you, you have to do sometimes. So... When you change 10,000 passwords in a day, that's kind of a tremendous effort, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It takes a while. And you have to do that coordinated centrally and all of that stuff. So it's an impressive feat of, of the ones who do the, uh, the blue team work at our side. And your conclusion is that this was most likely from Chinese threat actors? Yeah, we got that advice from Recorded Future. We contracted that kind of attribution task out. And we we're very happy with the work they've done. It's been an epic effort from them. And uh, I don't know if they want to be named, but uh, some of them have been named. So the work they've done is outstanding. And I'm quite happy to say that the, they wanted to go public. And it's also something we supported. Because, of course, if you, if you ask some mysterious agency somewhere who did this, you can get the answer from them also. But they are cowards. They don't speak their own mind in public. You need someone else that can voice their opinion publicly and can go out into the public and get scrutinized for it. That is one of the kind of charming sides of Recorded Future. They have the balls to actually go out there and state their own mind, hmm. state their own opinion. For organizations that are trying to decide if they want to go public with information like this, mm -hmm. what sort of advice do you have for them as they're weighing that decision? 
I would advise them to do it. One of the reasons why I choose to go public with this, and it's also I'm backed by, by, the, by the corporate in this, is that we, we're not the ones who should own the shame in this one. It is the attacker who owns the shame. So we have to be able to pinpoint who did this and ask them to, to accept the fact that they have been doing the wrong things. It's not us. We are just defending ourselves. And other ways around, it's, I've demanded transparency from all of our teams now for, for all the time I've been in Visma. So transparency is something that is fundamentally anchored in everything we do. If you look at the other side around, so the evidence is out there anyhow. So lots of other targets were hit by the same actor about the same time. And some of them have chosen not to speak. They are now faced with having to answer questions from their clients. So why did you not speak about this? This is a compelling argument also. So if you go out public, I would like to commend or give kudos to Norwegian Hydro, which also suffered a massive attack, and they lost lots of money in their attack. But they chose to be transparent from day one. They shared the entire story. So I think it's only when you share your stories that people can learn. Another reason for why we shared this is that the report from Recorded Future contains IOCs, identifiers of compromise, that others people can read. Mm-hmm. And they can read the methodologies. They can actually learn how this actor works in detail and then prepare their own defenses. I think that if you don't share these stories, you're depriving the public of the ability to defend itself. So you have to share. I think you should feel compelled to share. And if you're told not to share, you have to ask why. Why should we not share this? Are we embarrassed? Are we embarrassed because we were breached? So why should you be embarrassed about that? There's nothing to be embarrassed about. When you're in the midst of incident response, when this has happened and everyone's emotions are running high, can you give us some insights as to what it's like when you're in the middle of that situation? Yeah, I think we have a name for it. We call it the fog of war because you don't know. It's, it's impossible to make decisions when you don't have enough intelligence to give you guidance. You're basically falling back on your own drills. So if you have trained a lot, if you're good at this stuff, then you know what to do. You do the normal security, you secure evidence and you do all the normal stuff. And you have to wait until you have sufficient intelligence to be able to make a qualified decision. So the fog of war is a terrible place to be for some. I love it myself. It's this kind of the place where you try to figure out what's happening. You try to connect the dots. So you need kind of good basic training and know how to deal with kind of uncertainty of things. And also on the inside of such an event, it's you have persons whose credentials has been stolen and they have been mimicked. So their identity has been stolen. So the trust that you then, you lose some kind of the, the perception of, of, of a reality that's made of cotton candy in that kind of uh, event. Mm-hmm. So I had lots of talks with the ones whose identity was stolen. And some of them were experiencing post-traumatic stress after this. Mm-hmm. So do they feel safe? Do they feel secure? And this is some of the stressful effects you can feel on, on human level in this. But if you're not equipped to handle this kind of fog of war in your organization, you just have to practice. Do all kinds of activities to practice for how to make decisions without proper decision-making intelligence available. A lot of organizations have trouble seeing the value in that, of investing in that kind of simulation, that kind of practice. But it seems as though it's money well spent. Oh, yeah. A good breach fixes that problem. So if you have a good (laughs) breach, you tend to realize that you have to spend money like that. Right. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about your own threat intelligence teams and how threat intelligence works into your own organization. How do you use it and the value that you find from it? So threat intel um, basically started just by trying to figure out 
from our own logs. We tried to start this entire process by just asking ourselves some simple questions. So one of the questions was, how many attacks have you had against your service in the last 30 days? It's a very simple question. Bloody difficult to answer, but it's a very simple question. Mm-hmm. Um, and that inspired some of the teams, or most of the teams, to start reviewing their logs. Basic stuff. So, and the second question is, how did these attacks differ from the month before? By making people aware of seeing changes in behavior from the attacking side. So that led us to the natural succession, which is the third question. Who did this and why? So when you have these three questions answered, then threat intelligence is a natural answer because the teams themselves are autonomous. They're supposed to be self-managed. So they need detailed threat intelligence. They need understanding of the threats that affect them. So in that sense, our threat intelligence work is primarily focused on translating the threat intelligence from actors like Recorded Future into a context that is actionable in the teams. So the teams, in my sense, is the 300 plus development teams that we do have. So they need to get that information into their own context so they can act on it. And that is, I believe, the art of, um, of this threat intelligence discipline. To have all these attribution tables available for us makes it easier to create translation in context. And is that a matter of making sure that the right bit of actionable intelligence gets put in front of the right person within the organization, that those conduits are open and and flowing? Oh, yes. Highly important. We have to have a basic respect for the craftsmanship required to gather intelligence. And Recorded Future has proven that they have that craftsmanship. When you take that intelligence and you translate into the context of, for instance, a team that builds an ERP system for plumbers, So you have to understand the context of that ERP development team. That is basically my job and and the threat intel teams in our place. So how do we translate it? What do they really need to know? And when do they need to know it? So if we spam them with loads and loads of information, it's not actionable anymore. It's just overload. So how do you present information in the right way at the right time to the right person? That, I believe, is the insider art that needs to be mastered in most companies. It takes a while to grow that maturity, but it's really worth it. I think the big learning from from this entire incident is that when you can present the management team or directors with conclusion that, okay, this was done by this threat actor, that gives them an array of options. So what do you do with that information? So the alternative is that something happened. We have no idea who did it, but this happened at least. That's all we know. So you can't do anything. The only thing you can do then is invest more in security. But if you have some secure attribution to some kind of actor then you have a choice. So in this case, it was a nation state and Recorded Future was kind enough to point um, in the direction of China. That meant, okay, the only cure for that is go public. Send a clear message that we do not accept this kind of behavior and we will always go public with these things. I have heard from some security researchers who kind of take the approach that attribution isn't really that important. It's kind of secondary that you know, as long as we know the indicators and those sorts of things that attribution is for nation states by nation states, but that for private organizations, it's not so important. But what I'm hearing from you is that it matters. It's part of how you craft your next round of defenses, if you will. I would say it's not unimportant. It is imperative. It's critical. Hmm. So if you compare the nation state dilemma with a normal criminal dilemma, so a criminal attack it's, it's even simpler to the attribution in that context. So if you have a normal, let's, let's say, a fraud situation, let's just imagine the unfathomable that Dave 
becomes uh, a fraudster mm. and he wants to use one of my systems to send lots of fraudulent invoices to people. So the knowledge, if I were to present that knowledge to the board of directors that Dave is the guy who did this, that gives them options. Dave is easy to deal with because we know where you live. Mm. So we send a police officer to your door and the police is hyper efficient when you can give them that information. And then we can remove a threat. So you might be a repeat offender. So if you remove the criminals from the streets by using the, uh, the trait of attribution, you reduce the problem. Of course, you, Dave, will come along and then we have to do the same thing again, but it's just normal crime. Mm. You remove one criminal at a time. So attribution is a very powerful tool and it gives you options. So without attribution, you have no idea who did this. And that means that the only thing you can do is invest more in the next magic box or the next magic model or the next magic algorithm or whatever is popular these days. So it becomes an, an everlasting spiral. So you have to send some messages from time to time to both criminals and nation states, I guess. Hmm. What is your advice for organizations that are starting their own journey with threat intelligence, who reach that level of maturity where they know they want to make it a part of what they do? What sort of tips do you have for them to get started? Basic tip is just do it. Um, because threat intelligence is not that difficult. Call an adult, find someone else who does it from before and figure out how they do it. We are freely sharing everything we do. We have transparency as a kind of carrying principles for everything. Uh, so we are willing to share with anyone who wants to listen uh, how we do threat intelligence and how we basically model this in. And I'm sure many others do the same things. So for me, uh, threat intelligence is a completely natural thing to do. You have to understand your threats. You have to analyze them and discuss. So is it really nation states? Who is your primary threat for that kind of application? Or is it cyber criminals? Um, who are the actual threat actors out there? And so are you afraid of, of DDoS attacks? Well, land behind Cloudflare or something. That's a, a typical advice. If it's nation states, then prepare your press corp. So you need to be able to go public if they strike you. And some of them are more sneaky than others. So you can see all nation states anyhow doing this. This case, it was China. It could have been anyone. But we'll do the same with any nation state that does it, regardless of from where they come. Mm -hmm. The report from Recorded Future is, is now being used as partially curriculum on some universities. What I really hope is that the, the kind of publication of this means that many others will review it and read it and maybe have comments and disagree. So for me, the optimal result is that some really, really smart scientist someday find something wrong with it, and maybe can give us a different attribution. All we want to know is who did this. And we have shared the entire reasoning behind this. All details is shared. And if people read it and have another opinion, please share it. Go publicly and discuss. We're just happy about this. Um, because we want people to, um, to at least understand how at least one actor works. And hopefully someone else will tell their stories about other actors and how they work. We're just, we have the same enemies, everybody here. It's nation states shouldn't be attacking corporates. It's just rude. Go attack each other instead. <laughs> Pick someone your own size. Our thanks to Espen Johansson for joining us. We sat down at Recorded Future's 2019 Our Fun Predict Conference in Washington, D.C. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web, Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. 
The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.